All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a great Monday morning show for you today, including the great oil debate. Now that's coming up at the bottom of the hour. Now, did you hear what Elizabeth May had to say about the Canadian oil industry? Let's just say she's not exactly bullish on the oil biz. Here's what she had to say. So basically you're saying oil is dead. Oil is dead. Oil is dead. Yeah, oil is dead. Tie a toe tag on it. It's like the parrot on Monty Python, according to Elizabeth May. Oil is dead. Now, here is the question. Is she right? Well, there's no doubt the Canadian oil and gas sector going through tough times right now with this pandemic. Prices are down. Demand has slumped because of the recession. There's a global price war going on. But is oil really dead? Should the government take the oil patch off of life support? We are going to debate all those questions coming up at the bottom of the hour on the show today, okay? So right after the nine, your 9.30 news, we got an awesome panel set up on that. So that's coming up. Also, lots of opportunity for you to have your say on the open phone lines in that one as well. So get set to call me. All of that coming up and lots more on the show today. But first, let's kick it off with the online petition that's gaining steam right now, calling on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and federal MPs to take a pay cut during the the uh, pandemic. Lots of other political leaders around the globe are taking pay cuts. Uh, so far, no indication that Justin Trudeau and other federal MPs are going to do the same thing. My guest is Aaron Woodrick, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing good. How many signatures have you got in your petition? Yeah, I haven't actually checked yet, but I know it's in the tens of thousands. Tens of it's thousands. Uh, you know, it's safe to say we, we did a we actually did a a poll. We used Angus Reid Forum. Um, we found two thirds of Canadians uh, are in favor of this. Uh, you know, every part of the country, every demographic, every age group, every political party uh, affiliation, more than fifty percent support. So it's pretty clear that uh, that people are in support of this. As you say, around the world, a lot of other political leaders have been doing this. Uh, wow. So this is not as if we're asking for something no one has done. New Zealand, India, Japan, uh, leaders there, MPs there, taking 20, 30 percent pay cuts for at least a year. So we think this is something that uh, the Trudeau government and all MPs in Ottawa really need to look at. Right. How much do MPs get paid right now? Uh, the salary for a member of parliament, federal member of parliament, is one hundred and eighty-two thousand dollars a year. Wow, one hundred and eighty-two. <laughs> and that's before expenses. And yeah. Didn't they just and that's get before expenses? They just got a raise, right? They did. They got an automatic yeah. raise on, believe it or not, April the first. Uh, to be yeah. fair to them, it was a pre-planned raise. It's not as if they just decided in the middle of the pandemic to give it to themselves. But right. we actually asked them to give that up. And uh, to their credit, two-thirds of them, more than 200 MPs, said they would donate the pay raise because they didn't have time to officially cancel it. Right. That's the official system that they got in Ottawa and also in British Columbia here right now. They don't set their own salaries anymore. They've got this sort of basically an independent commission and their salaries are more or less indexed to inflation and they and they get an automatic raise every year now what they did here in bc for for provincial mlas is they canceled they canceled this year's raise provincially for for mlas no pay cut but they did cancel their raise now in ottawa they got the raise but like you said a lot of mps aaron are saying well i'll I'll give it to charity and trudeau has said that right trudeau has said i'll give my raise to charity andrew Scheer, the opposition leader has said i'll give my raise to charity but what you're saying is they should go beyond that and take a pay cut. Right? How much of a pay cut do you think they should take? 
Yeah, I mean, that's up to them, but I, I think something in the range of 20% is not unreasonable. And people have said to me, well, you know, isn't that mean-spirited and they're working hard? It's not about being mean, and frankly, it's not about how hard they're working. They are working hard. I give them credit for that. But the reality, Mike, is a lot of Canadians are working hard, but they've seen pay cuts. They've had, uh, they've had people have lost jobs. A lot of people have lost hours. Um, the reason that politicians in other countries are doing this is they recognize that it's, a, it's an important way to show some leadership and some solidarity with people. Yeah. Uh, because especially when you think about what, when, we, when the bill comes due for all this, because it is going to be expensive, what, 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 we're, what we're doing right now, um, you know, there's going to have to be reductions in government spending. There's no getting around it. And if politicians, you know, put, put their skin in the game and say, I'm willing to share in this with you, I think it's going to make it a lot easier for them to, to make their case about necessary reductions elsewhere. Okay, you mentioned there's a lot of other political leaders around the world that have taken a pay cut. There's been a lot of private sector corporations and CEOs have done the same thing, kind of leading by example. One of the most notable ones is um, in New Zealand, the prime minister there, Jacinda Ardern, and here she is announcing her pay cut. Today, I can confirm that myself, government ministers, and public service chief executives will take a 20% pay cut for the next six months. As we acknowledge New Zealanders who are reliant on wage subsidies, taking pay cuts and losing their jobs as a result of COVID-19's global pandemic. We feel acutely the struggle that many New Zealanders are facing. And so too do the people that I work with on a daily basis. Okay, Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand there, very popular politician there. And there she is, taking that 20% pay cut, Aaron, uh, for six months, she said there. Is, is that the way you'd like it to work here, too, like be temporary pay cut? I think that's the bare minimum. I mean, I think I think there's an argument that if we're all, you know, the, the thinking with a lot of other people's, uh, you know, job losses and pay reductions are that it will be temporary. So I think that's the bare minimum. But, uh, you know, I think she's absolutely right. And, you know, Justin Trudeau is, is friends with her. I understand he's had some phone conversations with her during this crisis. And I certainly hope this topic has come up because I think, you know, at a time, Mike, when a lot of people are cynical about politicians generally, uh, it'd be a pretty good uh, move for a politician from any party or all parties just to show that they actually understand what uh, the rest of Canadians are going wouldn't, through. wouldn't make any difference, though, would it? I mean, if they took a, a pay cut, it'd be, be symbolic. I mean, it's not going to make any difference. they got billions and billions of dollars going out the door. I mean, the, the deficit is going to be unbelievable. So, I mean, if they cut their pay by 20%, 30%, what difference is it going to make? Well, substantially, you're right. I mean, it's, we're talking about, we, we ran the numbers of 20% pay cut. We'd be about $12 million a year. Uh, okay. But my point, as I said, is that eventually we are going to need to cut the size of government. There's simply not going to be enough money to pay for everything that we've paid for in the past. And it's going to be a lot easier for politicians to tell their bureaucrats, you're going to have to take a pay cut if they themselves are saying, you know what, I took an even bigger one up front. I think yeah. it just gives them the moral high ground. Yeah, I mean, it's... Like leadership is, and what you heard in that clip there from the New Zealand Prime Minister, she said this is about leadership. I mean, you know that this is not going to solve everything. It's really, yeah, it's symbolic, but it's about leadership, right? So you kind of lead by example, and she's one of many that has done that, and we've seen a lot of private sector CEOs do that. What are some other examples of, of politicians who've taken pay cuts? Yeah, in Japan, all members of parliament took a 20% pay cut for a year. Uh, in India, we saw all members of parliament take 30% pay cut for a year. So there, you know, we're not suggesting something that no one has done. There are politicians in other countries that recognize the importance of this, you know, partly symbolic, but also substantive. And I think, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of downside here for MPs other than the fact that, yes, they'd have to 
get by with less pay. But frankly, uh, they are in much in a much better position to take that cut than the vast majority of Canadians well, uh, when you consider yeah. their compensation package. Well, yeah, when you're making 108, was it 182 grand a year? That's right. Yeah, I mean, come on, you can afford to take a little pay cut, I think. Okay, here we go with the great oil is dead debate. Now, this all started with federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May weighing in on the oil industry. Let's just say she's not bullish on the oil patch here. Now, have a listen to this. Here's Elizabeth May uh, talking about the Canadian oil sector. She's asked a question here at the end. Just pay close attention to what she says here. If we want to get out of this pandemic with a healthy global economy... Don't put money in fossil fuels at all to try to bail them out. It won't work. Put money into renewables and energy efficiency and a low-carbon economy because that's the only money that's going to actually be able to create a lot of jobs quickly and get the economy going again. So basically you're saying oil is dead. Oil is dead. Oil is dead. Yeah, it's Elizabeth May. Boy, that got a lot of attention. Let's talk about it now. What a great panel we've assembled for you. Peter McCartney is a campaign, a climate change campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for doing this. Also on the line is Vivian Krauss. She is a researcher. She follows the money and financing in the environmental movement. Vivian, it's nice to have you back on. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you both, guys. Peter, let me go to you first. Do you agree with Elizabeth May that oil is dead? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, I think she's saying it won't work if we bail out these companies, which I think is the the key here is that, you know, we can shovel public money behind this industry and just follow it down the rabbit hole, or we can use our resources um, with an eye to the future and, and actually invest in the green economy that we need and provide jobs. Uh, for the people that are in that sector who are struggling right now. What about all the Yeah, they're struggling, all right. I mean, that economy's on its knees over there in Alberta. What do you say to all those people who are out of work? Are you just going to l- cut them loose? Well, no, I think, you know, that we have supports for people who have lost their job due to this pandemic. Uh, they qualify for those supports. And I'm just saying, you know, we need to be smart about this. I'm from Alberta. I know lots of friends and family who are hurting right now. Um, but, you know, they come to me and they go, crying on my sh- like, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to have an economy? And I think, you know, more than chest thumping and sort of this weird petro patriotism that we've found in Canada, they need a plan. And they need, you know, actual uh, opportunities in the next economy that will uh, survive for the long term. Okay, Vivian Krauss, what do you think? Well, you know, Mike, let's start with the numbers. You know, um, before pre-pandemic, we were using uh, more than 90 million barrels of oil every day. Okay, so work it out. And that works out to a thousand barrels of oil every second. Wow. Okay, so the, the 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 planet is using is is using a tremendous amount of oil, and even if you know post pandemic uh, or even during the pandemic, we're, we're in this for a while. And it's it's obvious that our use of of oil is going to be uh, is going to be cut way back, right? Maybe even twenty million barrels a day, right? So that, but still, even then, even if it was to cut back, say thirty percent, we're still using. 700 barrels of oil every second, not every minute or every hour, every second. So the, the, the fact is, whether you like it or not, the reality, the practical reality is that we are in for using oil for a couple more decades. Well, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, even looking at the numbers, uh, some of the reports from the International Energy Agency, which is forecasting that global oil demand will continue to grow for 
another 20 years. Yeah. Peaking, in tw- the- peaking in 2040. Yeah, Vivian, go ahead. Yeah, but here's the thing. So what is happening is that because the oil market is going to shrink, and it was shrinking even before the pandemic, now with the pandemic, it's going to shrink even faster. So what's going to happen is that the the, the global oil market is like a playground, and some kid is going to get pushed off the swings. Some producer is going to get pushed out. And the question is, who? Which country is the easiest to bully out of the global oil market, right? Now, the United States has had, had, a, had, a, had been kicking out Iran for the longest time with sanctions and all sorts of other things. You think the Americans want to, want to cut back their own production? Heck no. You know, they have tripled, they have tripled the oil production in the United States. They've lifted their ban on oil exports. They are now exporting uh, to more than 20 countries. Meanwhile, Canada... We, we aren't even 4, 4% of global oil production. So we're a tiny, tiny slice of global um, carbon emissions. But for our country, this is really uh, important economically. You know, even now, we're still selling $120 billion worth of oil. And, you know, our industry, okay. our oil industry, to its credit, it's the only one in the world that has a carbon cap. Okay, so they've eliminated the allowable uh, carbon emissions. It also has a tax, and they've got a whole plan for beyond bitumen. They're doing, okay. they're doing okay. more innovation than anybody. Peter McCartney, what do you say to all that? You know, I think actually Vivian makes two really interesting points. You know, the first being that oil demand hasn't fallen that much. Uh, it's only fallen about 10% during this pandemic, and yet it is causing absolute catastrophe for the communities and the workers who rely on this industry. So it actually doesn't have to fall all that much. We can still be using oil. Um, but it doesn't mean that this industry is going to be supported forever. And then, you know, to the point of one country is going to be knocked out, and I think she's absolutely right about that. Unfortunately, you know, it's not environmental activists that are causing Canada to be the one. It's the fact that we have incredibly high-cost, low-quality oil. We c- our break-even point for oil is about $45 a barrel. Saudi Arabia can produce oil for four. You know, it's obvious to anyone, this isn't just the Green Party saying this, this is Wall Street investors, this is central banks, that Canada's oil is going to be the first to go. And that's, you know, yeah. it's unfortunate, um, but ultimately, are we going to spend billions and tens of billions of public dollars trying to, you know, pull this out from an economy that doesn't make sense anymore? Or are we going to try and transition to Vivian. something better? Vivian, what do you okay, say? Uh, this is one thing, that, Peter, I'd love you to explain this. So, one thing I've never said about you guys is why you are against higher-priced oil. Because I would have thought that for the green, uh, you know, the, the, for the green movement, the thing we should do is to get us to use more oil is to make it more expensive, right? And we, we've seen this recently. Just a few years ago, the, the Saudis launched a price war. And what happened? Gas got cheaper. And in the United States, they all bought bigger trucks. And they all drove way more miles. They, they, they made a whole lot more carbon emissions because the price of gas went down. So here's my question to you guys. Why don't you bully out of the market the cheap oil that comes from countries where there are massive geopolitical problems and very serious human rights issues? Why are you bullying out the cheap oil? Why don't you, why don't, I mean, why don't you bully out the cheap oil? And keep the oil that's that's more expensive. It would be more to it would serve your purposes, right? Because Peter. people would use less of it. Peter, 
I am shocked to hear Vivian Krauss arguing in favor of a carbon tax because that's exactly what that does. I've always the argued on pollution so that the price <laughs> of so that people are able uh, to make choices, knowing that the price on of gasoline and fossil fuels will be increasing over time. Um, when it comes to you know which countries are uh, are the ones that we're focusing on, obviously our members are in Canada, and so we focus on Canada. And the tar sands have some of the most polluting oil in the world because in Saudi Arabia, they just stick a pipe in the ground and oil comes out. We don't have any of that left anymore. We have to clear cut a boreal forest. We We boil bitumen out of water using fracked gas from Northeast BC. It's an incredibly energy intensive process. And, you know, that's why uh, the tar sands have been such a big target of the environmental movement because it's worse oil. Okay, Vivian, real quickly, and then we'll take a break and take some phone calls. Go ahead. You know, you guys always focus on big oil. Mikey should do a whole show on little oil, on how oil has saved the family farm in Alberta and Saskatchewan. You know, there's, a, there's, well. a, there's a lot of tiny oil producers out there, and, it, and it's a very important component of their, of their communities, you know. It's not just big oil. And there is, you know, in Canada now, okay, more than half of our oil production doesn't come from those tar sands mining projects. The majority of it is SAG D production. And those sites, it looks like a park. You know, there, there's almost no deforestation. There and they're even more carbon intensive. Mining. Okay, no, guys, here, here's... no, 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 that's not true. Some of it is actually lower. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about Elizabeth May and uh, oil is dead. A couple of listeners have pointed out to me she's she's not the federal Green Party leader officially anymore because she's she's stepped down. They got a leadership race going on in there. Anyway, she's the uh, Green Party uh, House leader for the party in Ottawa, though. But anyway, she says oil is dead. Now, here's another federal politician kind of dumping on the tar sands. This is Yves-Francois Blanchette. He is the leader of the Bloc Québécois. I'll have a listen to what he says here. Oil industry as a whole might not be so dead. I think tar sands are condemned. And putting any more money in that business is a very bad idea. Okay, that's the Bloc Québécois leader there saying, don't put public money into the oil sands here. They're condemned. My guests are Peter McCartney, the Wilderness Committee, Vivian Krauss, environmental researcher, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Let's go to your phone calls here. Paul calling in from Burnaby. Hi, Paul. Yeah, hi. Um, well, here's a big fact. Um, Alberta oil sands is the only new source for what's called heavy oil. You know, uh, Saudi Arabia oil, Middle East oil is called sweet crude. It's very light. American shale oil is diluted to get it out of the uh, coal, of the rocks and that. And without heavy oil... You don't have diesel, and you don't have what's, you know, for machine oil. And so all the worldwide refineries for the next 30 years are going to need uh, Alberta's oil to blend into these other products, which they're doing today. And uh, so that's kind of where it is. It's a kind of very niche okay. area. Yeah. Well, thanks for calling in. Peter, Do you uh, is that true? Do you agree with what he said there? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think the biggest source of demand for heavy oil is actually cargo shipping. Um, they take all these freighters going all over the world. And the International Maritime Organization has promised to phase that out. Uh, I think it's by 2025, but don't quote me on that. Um, you know, it's within a very short time. And so, you know, getting rid of some of the most polluting fuels that we have is a priority on a global scale. 
And, you know, we, we are going to have to grapple with that. Okay, Vivian, what do you say to that? He hasn't got his facts straight. You know, it's not the fuel itself that's polluting. It's how you use it. And most of the emissions don't come from the production of the oil. You know, that's, that's a, a small percentage. It, it, it comes from the, the cars that drive around in it. There's lots of ways to, to reduce the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions, and that's exactly what the Canadian oil is doing. In fact, the, the, the statistics show that Canada has reduced the greenhouse gas emissions per barrel faster and more than any other country. Right. But what hap- what's happened here is that there has been and, and the premier in, in Quebec is right about one thing, that, that unfortunately, the oil industry has been condemned in, in the minds and the hearts of people. But that's because of a campaign that was deliberate. There was a deliberate campaign to stigmatize, to discredit um, ca- Canadian oil. But it's not based on the truth. And that's the problem. They okay. arbitrarily chose a couple of, you know, good sound bites um, as, as ways to, to stigmatize Alberta oil. And who's benefiting? The United States, where the oil industry has tripled. And no one says boo about Texas. You know, no one says boo about the fact that the, the Americans are, 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 are producing way more hey, oil. Peter, you better, you, you better get in there and respond to that before I go to another call. What do you say to that? I mean, like the environmental movement in the United States is working incredibly hard to, you know, rein in shale oil production in Texas and North Dakota. And, you know, I think for Vivian McCarthy to be accusing people of picking up on, you know, cherry picking details and that kind of thing is pretty rich. <laughs> Explain. Explain. Yeah, Go what's, for your, it. what's your point? Is that, you know, Vivian's whole thing is that she picks through, uh, certain foundation data and creates this broad narrative about attacks on Canadian oil and and kind of wraps it in a flag. And like, of course there's been a campaign against Canadian oil. We've been pretty open of that. Um, And the truth is Canadians are behind us. Polling for a green new deal and a phase out of fossil fuels polls in the seventies in this country. There's more consensus around this than any other issue. Vivian, go ahead real quick and then I'll take another call here. Go ahead. Well, you know, there's written strategy papers about this campaign that targets Canadian oil and does nothing about Texas, okay? After I, I, I wrote about this, what happened? What happened? They rewrote their websites. They removed the web pages. They tried to hide it all. Why? You know, if you, okay. if you guys are so proud of what you're doing, how come the organizations that are at the heart of this, corporate ethics, communicopia, why did they retract and rewrite what they said they were doing? No. Okay. Let's go back. Let's go back to the phone calls real quick. Dan on the line in Surrey. Go ahead, Dan. Hi, Mike. Uh, as far as oil uh, being dead, how many tankers come from Saudi Arabia to this country every week, month, whatever? And um, now they're talking about shipping oil from BC through the Panama Canal to Eastern Canada. And um, as far as I know, they still crucify people in Saudi Arabia. So where do we want to get our oil? And with the deficits this country's facing, you think we can just eliminate oil and somehow dig our way out of this? It's crazy. Okay, okay thank you for the call. Peter, how do you respond to that argument that, you know, if we, if we take down Canadian oil, the, the gap's just going to be filled with Saudi oil from, these, from countries that got these terrible human rights records? I mean, the building of these export pipelines has absolutely no bearing on the amount of oil that we import into Canada. Um, we haven't built refineries here in a long time because it's made more economic sense to concentrate them in the United States. And that's the only answer to that question. Um, they really don't have anything to do with each other. 
Okay, let's squeeze another call here. May on the open line, calling in from Arizona. Hello. Hi there. How are you Hi. all today? I'm, I'm not Canadian, but I'm quarantined here in Arizona. Okay, One cool. thing that's always bugged me in my 77 years in British Columbia is why did the uh, oil industry not allow refinering done right at the site at the oil companies in uh, different areas wherever they're pumping oil out of the ground? Okay. Thank you for the call, and I, I hate this. I hate to step on you calling in all the way from Arizona, but we've only got thirty seconds left. Vivian, do you want to answer that real quick? Yeah, sure. There is a refinery up in Edmonton. You know, people keep saying, "Why do we have no refineries?" We do have refineries, but the trouble is, you have to refine the product near where you use it, and that's why it makes okay. more sense for us to get our get some of our our market closer to the to, to the border refineries. But there are refineries in Edmonton, and they're okay. some of the best in the world. Guys, I wish we had more time. That really flew by. Thank you very much for a, gr- a terrific discussion. I appreciate it a lot. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about this pandemic, a lot of people staying at home, and I think the pets in our lives become all that more important. I mean, our members of our family become all more crucial to our lives, in- including the pets in our home. And I was talking to a buddy of mine on the weekend, and he's spending a lot of time at home, and he decided to uh, adopt a dog. So he and his wife got a uh, a rescue dog. I think they got this dog from outside of Canada, but they were thrilled to get this uh, dog in their home. And I wonder if we're seeing more people take in, uh, looking to take in a pet or taking in, take in a rescue animal, especially during this pandemic with people uh, at home. Let's check in with Marcy Moriarty. She's the Chief Prevention and Enforcement Officer at the BC SPCA. Marcy, it's nice to have you on again. Good morning. Nice to be on. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you again. It's been a while. So are you seeing an uptick in people looking for pets to adopt? Well, we definitely have seen um, an uptick. In fact, we just got the stats on visits to our website, and it's up 87% um, in March. We had a big push to adopt out animals, and I admit I myself am uh, one of those. I was a foster fill and now have a brand new kitten in my family. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Are you able to get your kitten through the SPCA then? Uh, yeah. Of yes. course. <laughs> of course. Um, so what what do you read into that? Like the, the traffic on your website? Is it because people are at home and maybe they're they're thinking like, well, maybe now I have the opportunity to to adopt an animal? I think that's exactly the case. I think yeah. people, again, are thinking if they were in the past, considering now they have the time. I also think we all crave, um, you know, comfort and that human animal bond is so important. And we at the BCSC really did make a, a call out to the public um, in the very beginning to, to get animals out of our shelter in case um, we needed to have space available for emergency um, boarding situations. If, you know, we saw the levels of, of COVID and if people were sick and couldn't look after their pets temporarily. Yeah, right. Um, so for people who are looking to adopt a dog or cat, do you have many animals available for adoption? Well, we'd encourage, we're doing um, business is a little bit different, of course. Yeah. Um, we do encourage people to visit our website, and we're facilitating the adoption process um, via the website. Uh, absolutely, we it's kitten season now, and unfortunately, with spay neuter being halted, we are seeing um, an an increase in kittens. So, I'd say if you're if you're in the market for a kitten, um, absolutely, uh, there's there's a number of them coming in. Um, we we were really successful in adopting out a lot of dogs in the beginning, but people should always just check our website um, uh, if they're interested. Okay, speaking to Marcy Moriarty from the SPCA, uh, spay and neuter has been halted. Why is that? 
Well, it's all part of the whole um, trying to do essential services only, maintaining physical distance and preserving um, PPE. Uh, so in the, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, the chief veterinarian um, made a call to say that non-elective surgeries, and that uh, would include spay neuter, um, would be part of it. So it's something that we hope to see brought back in um, in some capacity shortly because I, wow. the fallout is we're going to see a number of um, explosions in cat population going forward. Similarly, we're seeing, again, these trends that we're anticipating. There'll be a greater need for people to access food bank, uh, pet food bank um, services. And that's something that our organization has really put a focus in on helping assist in communities um, to provide that support. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting about the spay and neuter. I didn't realize that that, that those services had been had been shut down through a essential service uh, designation. There. Uh, what What do you think of that, Marcia? Because I, I don't know. That must have been a tough call to make. I mean, you could it, make an argument that that would be an essential service, wouldn't it? It's definitely a tough call, and it's um, uh-huh. it's hitting us pretty hard. Um, you know, we've we dev- we you know devote a ton of our work to promoting spay neuter and, and population control and. I know that I'm a little anxious with a kitten here that um, I want to get him neutered as soon as possible. I think what we will see, though, is a phase in um, because BC is is doing well and people are following uh, the the rules. So I'm hoping that that we see a change in that shortly. How has the pandemic affected the SPCA overall and your operations? Well, it's been an incredible, I think, coming together of the team to develop new protocols, responding in different ways to challenges that um, all of us are facing. How do we how do we change um, ensuring we can meet the needs of the animals in the province? I know for my cruelty investigations team, it was, you know, they're on the front lines too. They're out there still responding to cruelty complaints, but it was, how do we go about it so we don't have to enter people's homes, for example, um, when we do come out on a cruelty call? So, we're we're adapting. Uh, we're definitely we were preparing for an increase in emergency boarding requests, and one area in particular would be in the area of interpersonal violence or domestic violence. And oh. I think we've seen in the news and the stats, and that unfortunately during times of crisis like this, there there is that increase in um, violence in the homes and violence against yeah. women and children, and that includes pets. Yeah. Speaking to Marcy Moriarty from the SPCA, is there also a chance that if people are at home right now, working from home, or maybe they're they've had their hours cut or they're out of work, they decide to adopt a, an animal, that when the pandemic is over and people go back to work, that they might decide they can't keep the animal? Is that is that a potential in, in the well, future? I mean, it's definitely something that's crossed our minds. We're hoping, though, it, that it's similar to the whole you know, gifts at Christmas type concept where you think it's a bad, well, you're going to see a, a big intake of animals. Um, but we, we haven't seen that trend. We're hoping that, again, that um, people are, are considering that when they do make that decision, that, you know what, life won't be always me at home. So while I'm wanting a pet right now, I need to make sure that I'm factoring in how I'm going to accommodate right. for that pet in the future. Right. You guys just do such an awesome job on protecting animals in our province and with the, the programs that you have and especially the important work that you do against uh, cruelty to animals. With, with this pandemic affecting operations, like can people still, can they come to your shelters and, and to pick out a, a dog or cat or has that been restricted now? Well, thanks for that. And you know what? We, we do. We, it's just 
the shelters, again, it's not open for public to come in and just browse what they have to do. They have to be making the appointment. And they do get to meet um, the animal. We just facilitate it with the physical distancing in mind. Again, we're, we're hoping that, you know, sometime in the near future, we will start to have a, a, um, the shelter doors open. But we are available yeah. online and through our call centre for sure. Right, but the shelters are closed to the public, though, right now. Is that right? For browsing, yes. But, I mean, okay. we do facilitate our adoption. Um, you would meet the animal. Right. Uh, it's just that it's done in a slightly different way. Same right. with our hospitals and our, our, um, our food bank work. Well, it's good to know you can still adopt an animal, right? That's a cr- critical function of what you guys do. So, so that's, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what about? Um, I know. I know. I, met, I knew of someone who fostered an animal at one point. They brought a, a dog into their home, but it wasn't like a forever home. They were just taking care of the dog for a while before it went somewhere else. Do you guys still do that? Absolutely. We made again a, a big call out to the public um, a few weeks ago, and we were just overwhelmed by support. Uh, so currently, we we have an incredible foster network. There's a few communities um, up north where we are looking for additional fosters, and we're reaching out directly in those communities. I know I even have neighbors who are a bit frustrated, saying, "Marcy, they live in Vancouver. We want to be a foster, and we're told that there's too many. You guys don't have any more spaces." And so I do. You know, I think that's the the result of all the support that people have come out for. If you want to foster, be patient. In some communities, we just we're, we're full up, but there yeah. there will be opportunities in the future. And what if someone um, has to surrender an animal for whatever reason? Are you guys still you're, you're still taking in new animals at the shelters? I assume too, right? Absolutely, and we understand people have varying. Um, personal situations and if you do have to make that difficult decision we are there and know that your animal would find a home almost immediately um we we're there if people need us we do have again our emergency boarding so if you are unable to take care of your animals temporarily either because you're in hospital or um, fleeing a violent situation we're also there so we just encourage people um in whatever need we're we want to be there just as we're supporting our healthcare workers are supporting our our um, our people out there. We yeah. we want to be there for the animals. What, what if somebody gets uh, gets sick and they have to give up? They have to give up their pet. I mean, thank goodness the the COVID rates in our province have been pretty low here the last few days. But if someone does get get ill, is can you guys take an animal off their hands if someone gets sick? Absolutely. So we yeah. have protocols to ensure that everybody, um, you know, we're, we're ensuring the safety of our staff and our volunteers. But that's exactly why we've designed that emergency boarding program is that we can temporarily provide care for that animal while somebody is sick and then reunite them with them um, uh, when they get better. Can you get... Um, can you get this virus from a pet? I mean, we've heard we've heard stories about that some animals have become sick with COVID-19. What do we know about that? Such an interesting question. And I can say absolutely there is no evidence, no um, uh, reviewed, peer-reviewed evidence to support that the transmission can go from pet to person. There are a few isolated cases where um, pet to pet or person to pet, but again, very, very few. And given the amount of um, cases worldwide um, and the attention on this, 
if that if if transmission did happen that way, we would have heard about it. You know, there, there would be way right. more. So, no, it's the short answer. <laughs> right. That's good to hear. And Marcy, I know you specialize in the, the cruelty prevention operations there at the SPCA as the chief prevention and enforcement officer there. Have you guys seen any kind of increase or uptick in, in calls for uh, cruelty calls? Well, we haven't seen, um, we've seen the normal rise that we would normally see around summertime, um, given that uh, more on the wildlife side, not necessarily on the cruelty side, I guess. So short answer again, no, thank goodness. However, you know, I do have a few cases across my desk where um, there has been sort of uh, violence against a pet. And when the individual is confronted as to why, um, you know, they have mentioned increased stress, personal stress. And so, you know... Absolutely increased stress. We're all feeling increased stress, but I just urge people, obviously violence isn't the answer. And if you are, you're not able to care for an animal temporarily, do, do reach out um, because we don't want to see um, that taken out on any animal. Do you think if, if someone is looking to get, like, let's say, a new dog, that it's better to get a rescue animal than to buy a, like, a purebred dog from a breeder? Like, our dog, we've got a, uh, a golden doodle at home, and... We just love her, and one of the reasons that we got that particular breed of dog was because I got some bad allergies to a lot mm-hmm. of dogs, and I need a specific breed of dog that doesn't shed its fur and it's hypoallergenic or whatever. So this particular dog met fit that fit that bill. I think it might be tougher to find a rescue dog that I might not be allergic to. Like for for people out there though, or, who are thinking about getting a new pet, would you encourage people to get a rescue dog, or what do you think about buying purebred dogs? hit it right on the, the thing it's it's the right fit and we are yeah. quite fortunate in bc that you know there's absolutely we we encourage people to look to adopt but it's about finding the right match for your family we want happy healthy dogs and happy healthy homes and so what whatever source people are turning to you want to make sure that you're not supporting poor breeding practices so yeah. the unscrupulous the, the backyard breeders but we, we again, it's it's about finding that right fit. Adoption is fantastic. There's many organizations that um, are, you know, have animals, and but we also see on the breeding side of things, we want to support um, good animal health from the, right at the very, very beginning of breeding. Um, happy, healthy dogs in happy, healthy homes. So, okay. um, yeah, that's I'll, what I would say on that. 